Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Friday, November 26, 2021. A happy holiday weekend, one and all. Hope you are enjoying time with friends and family, and most of all, staying safe and staying healthy. We have got some great stuff for you for this holiday weekend on this podcast episode, and we want to jump right into it. We know that Thanksgiving holiday is a complicated one, and we know each and every year, myths and stereotypes and misconceptions about Native American communities uh, are featured and promulgated, and, and that is problematic. And there are ways that you can get involved to share the real story of Thanksgiving and to uh, bring that to your colleagues, friends, families. And so we recently reached out to the partnership uh, with Native Americans, uh, and this is a group that our correspondent, Antonia Gonzalez, talked to. They do work with local groups. You're going to hear one from here in New Mexico as well. And this segment is really all about dispelling those myths and stereotypes and being a good uh, helper and a good advocate for Native American communities. We didn't have time for the full interview here on the broadcast show on New Mexico PBS, but want to bring it to you here. Again, this is uh, all about Thanksgiving um, stereotypes and uh, the myths that we need to dispel uh, to better understand all of those people that make up this great state of ours as well as this great nation. So here now, correspondent Antonia Gonzalez. Josh and Dory, thank you for joining us on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having me here also and Josh. And the fall, especially between Halloween and Thanksgiving, it's a time that the public gives attention to Native Americans, tribal communities across the country, but it also often raises myths and stereotypes. Josh, what are some of those that you most commonly hear? Well, I think that um, there's a number of common misconceptions, myths, stereotypes that go along with Native peoples, and they do rear their heads around this time. Um, one of them in particular is that all uh, Natives or all tribes are casino rich, and we know that that's not, in fact, the case. Um, there's other myths that uh, lead to people believing all Natives get free education, free uh, college education, and that's not true either. Um, and then um, also that um, every uh, uh, Native American gets a, a government check. And there are a number of falsehoods that go along with that as well. So, um, you know, this time of the year when uh, uh, there's a lot more awareness with uh, Native costumes um, and uh, battling that, it's a, it's a priority that we are out telling the truth, um, and especially this month when we uh, share the real story of Thanksgiving. Um, so that way we don't become caricatures in a history plan or a history lesson. And when people, when you go and you talk to people or educate or doing your advocacy or your work with your organization, Josh, how do you talk about Thanksgiving? Um, I think we talk about it very honestly. And I think that's been the disservice of the American education system was that it was an attempt to sugarcoat or gloss over 
uh, what actually happened as far as factually happened with the Wampanoag tribe. Um, and, you know, the, the, the story behind it and the facts behind it um, definitely tell a very different uh, a time, but also a very different history. Um, and it was probably a little bit more graphic than people would have liked to believe, uh, but it wasn't um, a very uh, positive experience for tribal members at that time. And so going into our presentations, we just wanna be really honest about uh, what we know now and start to dispel some of those myths that were taught to uh, school students uh, very early on and um, open people's eyes so that way they know that there is a, a greater story um, that has a way more details and another version that is um, also factually accurate that has largely been untold. And Dory, with your organization, you do a lot of outreach, service, uh, missions, and there are still a lot of stereotypes when it comes to Native people, especially when it comes to helping people with food and water. What are some of the misconceptions that you hear from the public? Yeah, just like what Josh said, that, you know, misconception like there's always dole out and free for, for the Natives, but actually no. And also like natives, Native people are always drinking, it's not true either because not all of them drink. Uh, like they're not so concerned about their children, but no, they're very family oriented, very family oriented. And uh, I just love our, our native people here, our Navajo community. And I am so glad that, you know, they have accepted me as part of their family also with my 15 years of living and working on the Navajo reservation, it feels like home, so. And Josh, uh, you partner with the Dory's organization. Um, they're one of many partners across the country that you work with. So talk a little bit about why that's important to work with other organizations like Dory's to reach out and help tribal communities. And that goes along with um, helping dispel myths. And I think that's a key, uh, key for our organization is that um, we're very community centric. And so we do our own, you know, asset based mapping exercise and partner with the community, partner with uh, organization like uh, Dory's. Um, so that way we're providing the types of goods and services needed for that community. We don't approach it as a cookie cutter style where we think it's a one size fit all solution. We know that uh, different communities have different needs and we wanna meet those communities where they're at rather than us coming in and trying to dictate what's going to be a, a solution. We wanna work with those communities to make sure we're finding um, long-term sustainable solutions, but also that meeting the short-term need for the communities. And you know, organization like ours, we, we are community driven, we're native driven and uh, bringing in uh, the community resource makes those impacts long lasting. And so we're able to have a greater impact providing exactly what the community needs rather than um, you know, doing a dump and drop and run of, of things that they 
may not have any use for. So it's being more strategic, it's being more intentional, uh, but that community aspect is very common in um, native communities and native populations. So it is about taking care of each other. It's about taking care of our elders. It's about taking care of our youth and that continual cycle of education. And so if we can lend resources to help dispel some of those myths and start to break some of those cycles of trauma, then that's what we want to do. And a lot of your advocacy and work, uh, both of you, has to go along with people not knowing history of Indian people here in the United States, Native Americans, Alaska Native people across the country, and how it's treaty and trust responsibilities and how their governments work, how, about their histories, languages, and cultures. And so there is a lot of education that goes into providing services um, and helping dispel myths and helping you know, talk about why these stereotypes even exist in the first place, Josh. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, I see a lot of our work uh, is education. It's constantly educating and re-educating people uh, because being such a small minority of the population and, um, you know, the world revolves really fast. And so the, the story and the true story of Native peoples gets lost. Um, and people are, are, you know, because in some ways it's not um, glorified in a sense uh, to make it a, a really a hot topic. But when people really sit down and start to drill down and, and dig a little deeper, they're blown away at how rich the history of Native people are, um, how you're correct, the uh, treaty and trust obligations extend, um, you know, requirement and they, they do uh, put the government on the hook. And so um, it's their burden that they've created uh, by not uh, uh, setting Native people up for success. You know, and so as we move forward, we want to create an environment of health, wealth, and prosperity. Um, and so talking about these um, ideologies, even with um, estate planners or estate attorneys, you know, they're absolutely blown away about this whole treaty and trust responsibility, um, you know, uh, basic things that are, are we grow up with as Native peoples knowing, um, you know, with, with regards to federal Indian law that the dominant society has no uh, conception of, you know, is that um, Native people can't, you know, freely sell their land. They don't freely own their land. Um, you know, small nuggets like that, that uh, come, come to head and in dominant society, they think, well, why doesn't, why don't native people just sell their land? And they can't, you know, there, there's, there's specific guidelines, rules and regulations that they can't. And so each one of those um, are, are deeply rooted in, you know, um, cornerstones of federal Indian law. Um, and so when we go through those exercises, it's constantly re-educating people um, and it's great to see different movements throughout the United States. For example, um, land acknowledgements are really popular right now. And it's great to see more communities, um, universities, um, events acknowledging those types of, of, uh, of, of issues or uh, being able to do land acknowledgements. Uh, but what's the next step? You know, it doesn't stop there with a land acknowledgement. Um, and it's looking at how do we mobilize and use that 
more effectively and not just as um, you know, a uh, precursor, but let's make it meaningful. And so that way it is an impact on uh, with native communities where they are. And that, that way people learn the history. But those efforts of it may be rename a, a, a movement to rename a river or rename a park or um, rename a place. Uh, but that just is a, as a, a gentle reminder, you know, that as native peoples, we are still here and that it's other um, uh, people, mainstream's obligation to be more native aware. Thank you for that, Josh. And also, Josh, you're talking about the resiliency of indigenous communities, um, you know, here in New Mexico, across the country. And so, Dory, how can the public appreciate native culture and celebrate native people without, you know, um, doing it in a bad way? Go ahead, Dory. Um, you know, treating them and respecting them as people. Like remove the stereotyping. When we, when we approach our native people here, we don't second class citizen or something. We treat them as precious people of value. Um, and we have just to respect them and recognize them, recognize their presence, recognize their, their, their language, respect their language. You know, um, when I, while I was serving here, I have heard so many sad stories that students of the past, even in the boarding schools, they were made to, to eat soap when they speak of their native language, which is very sad. And that, that, that left a big scar on them. Right now, you know, in the mission, we try to value their language. We try to study even a little bit of their language. I tried to learn small, you know, a short conversational word. And by that, they feel very important when they hear us uh, speaking of their language, even short language, or we sing their language. They are so very proud. They're so very happy that we value, we value them. And they said, oh, you were, you were different from other missionaries who have gone earlier before you. They, you know, they paddle us when our kids, they paddle when they speak the, the Navajo language. They, they, they let them eat soap when they speak their language. But now here you are, you're speaking our language, even if it's broken. You, you sing our language. We can't even sing our language. And that, that kind of lift their spirit up. And, and to me, that is very important to treat them as precious people created by God also that we, you know. So that's one way of, of celebrating the, the, native, the native people this month of November, not just doing a day celebration, but in our daily life, show to them that we care. Because, you know, in, in, in our community outreach, we have always said that people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care which is very important in connecting and celebrating, you know, the native people around us. And Josh, what Dory is talking about a little bit too is that reconciliation and also acknowledging the past and dispelling myths and looking at stereotypes definitely goes along with that. 
And as people move into the season between, you know, the end of the year, there's a lot of charitable giving going on. Both your organizations work year round, not just during the holidays on char charitable giving. Josh, how can people contribute, help, or, you know, even just learn about tribal communities across the country? Um, thank you for that question. And I think that you're right in the um, reconciliation uh, that's taken place right now with the boarding school movement has been huge. Um, but, you know, following or, or getting involved or engaged with a Native-led, Native-serving nonprofit um, is important, not just this time of the year, but all throughout the year. You know, we, we need, have a need for sustained donors, people that want to be involved. And sometimes uh, that may be by volunteer. Um, but it's also uh, uh, financially, you know, being able to financial support um, uh, a nonprofit that specifically address food and education. I think those are both critically important. Um, you know, I think we have some resources on our uh, website that if, uh, if a reader or a listener wants to download the uh, real history of the first Thanksgiving and then share that, you know, with, with friends and family. And, um, and really, you know, have an honest discussion about those things and uh, allow yourself to be transported back in that time, you know, and, and, and to feel the things that Native people had felt and what they have gone through uh, to build that resiliency of where we are today. I mean, obviously, uh, we would discourage anyone from um, donning any sort of uh, Native costumes or, or, or Native regalia. Um, inappropriately, you know, to um, celebrate Native heritage, um, but instead really get involved in your community or where you're at. Well, thank you both, uh, Josh and Dory, for joining us today on New Mexico PBS. Thank you, Antonia. Thank you, Antonia. All right. Also this week, we uh, have an update and a lengthy one at that on PFAS contamination. This has been part of our Groundwater War investigative project that you can find on our website at newmexicopbs.org. Just search under local productions and then for Groundwater War. Correspondent Laura Pascas has done a lot of great work over the last almost two years now about these chemicals, which are super dangerous because they bioaccumulate. That means they don't break down. They've been tied to a bunch of health risks. And they are in a lot of different things, uh, from waterproofing substances to microwave popcorn to dental floss. Uh, but here in New Mexico, the biggest problem is around the use of them in the past in firefighting foams at military bases like Cannon and Holloman Air Force Base, where we know there have been uh, amounts measure, measured there that are truly alarming. The military is going through the process of addressing that, but it's a lot slower than a lot of people would like. And uh, the State Environment Secretary, James Kenney, has been hard at work on this as well, along with the governor. They both want the EPA to set a lifetime standard for consumption of PFAS, which would give them a baseline to hold people accountable to. That has not happened yet, but there were some developments with the EPA recently that could be a great start. So we wanted to get an update on that as well as the Environment Department and what they're doing uh, on their own as well as trying to push the military to move up their response and their action to this, which is important because right now, especially at Cannon Air Force Base, 
There's still not a strong idea of how big the plume is and where it's headed. We know it's already impacted one dairy farm there. We've talked to the owner, Art Scop, there before. 2,500 head of cattle infected with this, which means the meat, the milk, all of it is not usable. So this is a very important issue. And uh, again, we talked to, to Secretary Kenny for almost 30 minutes, didn't have time for all of it in the broadcast this week, but want to bring it to you here. Secretary Kenny, welcome back to New Mexico in Focus. Thank you for having me. So we're once again talking about PFAS contamination from military bases here in New Mexico. Just to remind viewers once again, what are PFAS and, and you know, kind of what are the problems? Why are we concerned about them? Yeah, so PFAS are a chemical that are, that are typically used in firefighting foams, um, but they can be used in other uh, household products, things like um, fabric protection, um, think of your Gore-Tex clothing and things like that. Anything that's water repellent may have PFAS as the active ingredient that made it water re repellent. But in New Mexico, the biggest problem that we have here is with the, with the firefighting foams um, at, at typically our uh, military bases. Uh, but the, the concerns about PFAS are grow growing every day as the science continues to, to evolve. It's clear that um, the health studies show that PFAS can cause things like um, uh, high cholesterol. Uh, they can cause things like um, uh, uh, certain types of cancers, certain types of diabetes and things like that. Uh, there's about 9,000 chemicals here, so it's kind of hard to say which one causes what, but generally speaking, they cause those kinds of health ailments, uh, chronic and acute health problems. Mm -hmm. So the federal government, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the agency that's kind of in charge of setting drinking water and sort of regulatory frameworks for states and tribes, they have not set an actual limit for PFAS exposure in um, drinking water. They have set a health advisory. How does that lack of a federal regulation make things hard for states like New Mexico? Well, it's a great question, and it makes it hard because you don't know what a safe level is. And whether you're drinking water from a uh, municipal water system where most, many New Mexicans get their water from, or whether you're drinking it from a private well, you can test for PFAS, you'll get a result, and hopefully it's non-detect, zero. Um, but if there is a detection of PFAS, then the next question is, what's safe? And a lack of a federal standard for many years now has hampered uh, states and, and tribes from determining uh, how to work with communities to, to in not only protect them but enforce against those standards being exceeded. Um, fortunately now there's some commitment to developing that, that uh, drinking water standard uh, under the current administration from the US EPA, so hopefully we'll see that soon. So here at New Mexico PBS we focused a lot on groundwater contamination from Cannon Air Force Base and Holloman Air Force Base. And earlier this year, the governor petitioned the EPA to list four of these thousands of types of PFAS as hazardous waste under a federal cleanup law. Can you talk a little bit about that issue and, and how that affects or might affect New Mexico? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, 
I'm going to try to avoid using the, the uh, legal terminology and just speak more in plain English. Um, but the, the state of New Mexico, just maybe a little bit of a backstory here, the state of New Mexico um, asked the Department of Defense to clean up PFAS at, at Cannon Air Force Base under the hazardous waste rules of the state, which are the same as the feds. Um, the Department of Defense said, no, we're not going to do that, and then sued the state of New Mexico to prevent us from doing that. That started in 2019. Um, we feel as though, and EPA now agrees with us, that those chemicals, once they're in the groundwater, are a waste and they're hazardous. They're a hazardous waste. Um, but we needed to petition the EPA to say, do you agree with the state of New Mexico? And, and effectively, that's what we did. And, and clearly, the EPA concurred by saying that we're going to partially grant the governor's petition. Um, and by partially grant, they just said we're going to do it for these chemicals, these four chemicals, as opposed to the 8,964 other ones. Um, so that was a big win for the state that the federal government EPA agrees with the state of New Mexico. So what does that mean for for like the environment department moving forward? What can you do that maybe you couldn't do before? Well, I think what we could do before we did. And and we we said when a entity like the US government or a private company spills or dis discards PFAS on the ground, you can't do that. That's illegal. That's that's dumping of hazardous waste, pure and simple. Um, the authority that we that has been concurred by EPA just further bolsters that we were right. Um, and the Department of Defense is, I think, a, who really needs to understand that the rest of the Biden administration is now agreeing with the state of New Mexico, and they're the ones that are out of line with their interpretation of, of these hazardous waste laws. So I think. Uh, they, the Department of Defense, need to come in line with the rest of the federal government in the state of New Mexico and actually uh, play ball here. I mean, this is where they do business. This is the communities they work with and in. These are the people they employ, and this is where their servicemen and women are. Um, to say that they don't have to take responsibility for the waste that they got into our groundwater is absolutely ridiculous. No other entity in the state of New Mexico has that ability to do that, um, and neither do they. So PFAS is not, unfortunately, you know, it's not just a New Mexico problem. Other states have these these contamination issues as well. Um, the EPA's partial granting of this petition, will it have national implications, do you think? Absolutely. And since the petition was granted, we're being contacted um, by, you know, everything from everyone from law firms to uh, NGOs to talk about the national significance of the governor's petition and EPA granting that. Um, and in fact, whether you're in Tucson, Arizona, who is struggling with their own PFAS issues in their drinking water, or you're in Michigan the, the, with similar issues, um, the governor's petition kind of reset the landscape around the way uh, New Mexico's position, or put New Mexico's position out there and gave other states that tool to say, hey, when you spill PFAS and disregard it and don't clean it up, um, that that's actually a violation of, of state and federal law. Mm -hmm. So again, we open the door for other states to follow in our lead. 
So just to remind people again, um, in 2018, the Air Force notified state officials that PFAS had been found in groundwater um, coming from Cannon, coming from Holloman. The state took action um, trying to move the Air Force toward cleanup. The Air Force sued New Mexico. Then New Mexico filed um, a, a lawsuit asking a federal judge to compel sort of toward cleanup. What is what is happening with those lawsuits currently? So on the lawsuit that initiated it all, which was the Defense Department suing the state of New Mexico in 2019, um, that lawsuit is ongoing, um, even with a change in administration. Uh, that lawsuit initiated under the Trump administration and continues now under the Biden administration. There's been no, there's been no turning back, and the Department of Defense continues to uh, tell the state of New Mexico that we don't have the authority to administer our own state laws or our federal laws that were delegated to us by the EPA. Again, the EPA's clarification is extremely helpful. Um, so that lawsuit continues, uh, and and um, we're continuing to move through that in, into a more of like a discovery process. Uh, with respect to our lawsuit, this, the lawsuit that New Mexico said, hey, we're going to stick up for New Mexicans, um, and we also said it's an imminent and substantial danger. So if you have PFAS in your drinking water, you shouldn't be drinking it. Um, so that lawsuit is, unfortunately, was combined with, a, with a, a number of lawsuits around the country and consolidated into a South Carolina district. Um, and that we've tried to exit that, this multi-district litigation, multiple times. Um, but unfortunately, we have not been successful in doing so. Um, so that lawsuit is somewhat sitting at the moment, um, which is painful to think about because New Mexicans are dealing with PFAS while the legal system holds on to what we think is our best chance of moving forward. And if I remember correctly, it's like hundreds of lawsuits, right, that are all kind of bundled up in this multi-district litigation. Right. So, Laura, what's interesting is the lawsuits that kind of got moved to this multi-district litigation tend to be, you know, lawsuits against chemical plants for manufacturing these chemicals. Um, our lawsuit is an environmental lawsuit, again, compelling cleanup. It's, it's actually seeking an injunction, a preliminary injunction, to stop the Department of Defense from doing nothing, <laughs> to compel them to do something. Uh, so our environmental lawsuit got moved into this multi-district litigation with all these lawsuits about the chemical manufacturing industry. It's misplaced. It's not supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, we've tried multiple times to move it back to New Mexico, uh, but that the, the sort of arbiters of whether it can leave have, have kept it there. And do you have a sense, this has been going on for a few years now, do you have a sense of how much this lawsuit has cost New Mexico taxpayers? It's a good question and you've asked me that before and, and uh, at the time I didn't have an answer but the you know in thinking about it and going back and looking at the numbers you know between legislative appropriations between staff time AG the Attorney General's time you know we're upwards of six million dollars uh, focusing on trying to protect residents trying to understand where the plume is off base trying to make sure that we communicate effectively, um, and all the water sampling we've been doing 
in the process. So it's about $6 million um, of investment that should never have come, you know, should never have been asked to be paid for by the state. Right. So some of those studies, the state released some study results recently um, testing 55 wells in Curry and Roosevelt counties for 28 of these different PFAS compounds. And I'd like to talk about this study a little bit because the results show that the levels in these wells are below this EPA health advisory we mm -hmm. talked about. But I know that scientists recommend that you have no exposure to PFAS over the course of your lifetime. There's no safe level. So can we talk a little bit about um, what you found, which seems like good news, but also, um, you know, what are people being exposed to? It's a good question, and it is a little confusing, but that 70 uh, health advisory level that EPA uh, published, um, that's something we go by, but it's not the only thing we go by. And what we do in our department when we look at any PFAS test result, especially for drinking water, is we look at what all states have promulgated as their drinking water standards. So there's some pretty aggressive standards out there um, in, in states who have taken a leadership role to make sure that their drinking water is safe by promulgating low, low standards. So whenever we get a test result back, we first look at that 70, and then we say, well, how does it compare to other states, Vermont, Michigan, the list goes on and on. Um, and what I can say about those 55, I think it's 55 test results that we received, not only are they below the EPA threshold, but they're below other state drinking water thresholds. Um, it doesn't mean that the water is completely free of PFAS, I'm just saying that it is below those other state standards as well that are science-based drinking water standards to protect public health. So this study, um, you know, the, the Air Force notified the state of the contamination in 2018, but it doesn't seem like we have a good sense yet still of where the plume is and how it's moving. Um, to my knowledge, the Air Force has not done those studies, have not delineated the plume. Um, do these survey results um, help the state understand where the plume is and how it's moving? Yeah, so we're not just relying on people's wells to, to, under, you know, to figure out where the plume is and how, and how quickly it's moving and where it's moving. We're also doing our own remedial investigation, but the results you're speaking of that are in, in drinking water wells those do help us understand how quickly the plume is moving as well. So there's a lot of that integration of the scientific information we get from looking at the source area and then going out and looking at people's drinking water wells. Um, and the drinking water area, the drinking water provider in Clovis, Epcor, is also monitoring their wells for PFAS. So we feel we have a good safety net. Um, and we want to make sure that that plume is remediated before it hits any of those other wells. Mm -hmm. So um, we've been talking about Holloman and, um, well, we've mentioned Holloman and been talking about Cannon Air Force Base. The, the Pentagon released a report more than a year ago saying that there was the potential for PFAS contamination at Fort Wingate, the Army National Guard armories in Rio Rancho and Roswell the Army Aviation Support Facility in Santa Fe and White Sands Missile Range. 
Has the state heard anything about these studies? Um, have you received these studies? Do you know if these studies have even been initiated? Yeah, so what you're getting a slice or a view of with respect to the conversation we're having is some of the real targeted and most important PFAS work we're doing in the state with respect to those bases. But as you point out, it's not the only PFAS work we're doing. And in those particular instant, those particular sites that you just mentioned, we are working with different agencies, if you will, different organizations to make sure that if there is PFAS at those locations that we're, um, we're aware of it and we're regulating it. And I, I can give you an example. Um, as a result of what happened at Cannon and then thinking about the um, Rio Rancho site that you mentioned, we're looking at all our groundwater discharge permits to make sure that if one of those facilities, like Cannon or the Rio Rancho um, site, if they need a PFAS uh, limit or they need to do PFAS monitoring before they discharge, are associated with their discharge, that, that they are doing that. So we, I think we have about 25 permits out of 700 now, discharge permits in the state of New Mexico, that have PFAS monitoring requirements. And the work we're doing with particularly the Rio Rancho site is kind of influencing that uh, outcome. So we know there's PFAS. We're working to make sure that it's monitored. We're working to make sure that those other sites are brought into the fold as well. So there's litigation, there's disagreement. Um, what is the what is your sense of transparency from DOD? What is communication like? Um, how do New Mexicans, um, how can we be reassured that important conversations are occurring? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we publish, let me just always uh, give you this information that we publish all the data on our website. So as soon as we collect a sample and we have that information, we put it right on our website. So we try to make it as transparent as, as possible and our different programs, our Drinking Water Bureau, our Hazardous Waste Bureau, we, we work with communities to help them understand the results because it can get complicated. So we're working with individual communities, uh, but all that information is on our website. The conversations that we're having and in with federal agencies like the Department of Energy, we had a great conversation with them about the mixed waste landfill at Sandia, saying that PFAS has become a concern since the time that that landfill was put in place. And we want you to start monitoring for PFAS. And they're doing it. They're doing it right now. And those results will go up on our website. Um, I think it's the Department of Defense that is lacking not only transparency with New Mexicans, but lacking communication with the Environment Department. Um, I, as well as members of my staff, jump on their Zoom calls uh, to give community updates of what they're doing on base, which is not, not what they're doing off base, because what's happening off base is nothing. That's everything that the Environment Department is doing and that New Mexico taxpayers are paying for. Um, so you can rest assured that our department is trying to put as much information out about PFAS as possible, and we're having the important conversations with federal agencies like DOE, who's very responsive on this topic, and DOD, who is using the court system to 
not have the conversation. It seems so interesting to me because from administration to administration, environmental policy often changes. Um, we see that with the direction that lots of different federal agencies have taken, including the EPA, and yet on the PFAS issue in particular, the DOD seems to remain um, the same regardless of administration. I'm curious, is, is that normal? Do you, do you see hope for DOD coming around to this issue of PFAS contamination and remediation in New Mexico? Um, I'm hopeful every day. And um, we're sending a letter to the Department of Defense this week saying that in light of um, EPA's clarification and an agreement with the state of New Mexico, that we would like you to do what we asked. Um, and, and continuing to litigate against the state of New Mexico is, is unconscionable, actually, at this point. Um, but I, I'm hopeful and optimistic that we'll see real leadership uh, at the Department of Defense that will say, we, we do business in New Mexico, we are, have, we are part of the community, and we want to do the right thing. It's, I, it's never too late to do the right thing, and that's what we hope um, the DOD will realize and, and uh, give us a call. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to circle back um, to the EPA. We mentioned the, the health advisory versus a drinking water standard. EPA has said it's moving forward mm -hmm. with um, its PFAS action plan. Do you have any sense of when EPA will potentially announce a drinking water standard or, or how long it could take for one to be in place? So um, under their recent announcement, which is now the PFAS roadmap, just to, uh, I think they're distinguishing the roadmap from the action plan because there's more movement now in the, uh, in, in their PFAS actions. But uh, I, I don't have any great sense on when they're going to set a drinking water standard, but I'm optimistic that it'll be under two years. Um, I think the urgency by which not only New Mexicans, but anyone from this country is dealing with PFAS uh, demands that it should be as soon as possible. Um, because we, we really can't wait. We need to get PFAS out of our groundwater, out of our drinking water, and treated in a way that actually contains it and doesn't just shift it to another, you know, to the air, to the land, anywhere else. So I'm hoping it's sub two years, um, but I'm really hoping it's sooner than that even. There's so many environmental issues that people are trying to pay attention to, wrap their heads around, you know, climate change, water challenges, um, all sorts of different pollutants. I feel like when we talk about PFAS, it's really challenging because it's thousands of different compounds. It's in everything. It's persistent. It bioaccumulates. Um, it's an overwhelming issue, and I'm curious if you have any um, advice <laughs> for people and kind of how do we compartmentalize and tackle all of these various challenges in a timely enough manner for for it to matter for future generations no less our generations yeah and again so many environmental issues present that scenario you know that those sort of like we need action now our our health our families our communities our economy is suffering and I think 
New Mexicans should know that this state is doing all that it can, not only within the state, but we're changing the national landscape on, on how PFAS is being regulated right here out of New Mexico. Um, we will continue to offer uh, testing of drink, private drinking water wells through our Department of Health. We're continuing to test public water supplies. Um, fortunately, we haven't seen anything high enough that there needed to be, you know, um, the state needed to bring water in or something to that effect. But, you know, New Mexicans should know that there, we are on top of this. We are pushing as hard as we can. And, and if anyone had, uh, wants to join our department, uh, we are hiring. The more people we can have working on PFAS, the better, in my opinion. Um, so just know that we're science-based, public health-based, and, and, you know, I'd like to think we got this. You know, it's not as quick as, we, as I want, but we got this. Well, Secretary Kenny, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's all for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Again, we hope you're having a fabulous holiday weekend. We'll be back at you again Monday morning with more new stuff for you. Until then, thanks as always for listening and staying informed and engaged. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald.